Let's sit. Let's learn. Let's evolve. Let's talk. No more whispering in our minds. Today, we're listening to Let's Talk Black Power, a show about all the ways that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people resist, refuse, transform and reimagine. And in this, the 20th year of Let's Talk, this is your host, Ruby Wharton. My name's Ruby Wharton, I'm your host, and today we have somebody really, really special joining us. So for those of you who don't know what Black Power is all about, about the greatness of the front line, the brilliant black thinkers that are leading revolutions and making changes and actively resisting every day in their work, in their personal life, at home, in their communities. And we have somebody who lives that life and has walked the talk for many, many years, for as long as I've known her. And she's managed to escape the ravaged cyclone country of far north Queensland, Marwa Johnson. How are you going? Which way? Who's your mob and where are you from? Good morning. Which way? Bottomally. Uh, yes. Hello, everybody. Thank you for that deadly introduction, my sister Ruby. <laughs> so, um, oh, well, if you don't know me, um, my name is Marwa Johnson. If you do know me, you know that I'm a Wurundi person from a part of the broader Burugaba Nation, part of the Wurundi dialect. Um, also, uh, our language culture crosses over to Wangan and Jagalingu country. Uh, Wangan country is uh, really centered around Claremont, central Queensland, which is where my great, great grandmother, great grandfather are from. Uh, and um, got connections all through Queensland, through Kungalu, um, Mananjali, mm. Yemen, Kalali, <laughs> everybody. Um, <laughs> so if you're not related to me, you're probably related to me. <laughs> all the Murrays, all the Murrays, all the Gurries. Yeah. <laughs> So before we go on, got to acknowledge that we're broadcasting Black, Blessed and Beautiful from sacred, unceded, sovereign lands of First Nations people, not only here in Magandin, but also nationwide, wherever you're listening from. But before we get into it, you've been engaged in land protection work since you were a teenager. For listeners who don't know about your family's fight against the Adani Carmichael mine, Tell us a bit about that and the struggles that you mob have been going through over the last, like, odd decade. Yeah, mm. over a decade now. Oh, well, gee, October this year will be, okay, sorry, so 2022 wow. was 10 years since, like, the first time we said no to Adani. This year's 10 years since, like, that really big sort of mm. defining no decision from our people that essentially mandated um, our family representatives mm. and elders within our claim group to take up the fight against Adani in the sense of, well, now known as Ravis, mm. some, you know, rebranding there, mm. when we had our sort of, yeah, major defining no decision that mandated the leaders and representatives within mm. our claim group to go ahead and really um, push our no decision and make that mean something, no mm. means no. We have, have not and have... Um, Never under free prior and informed consent, uh, consented to the destruction of Jagalinga country through the Carmichael coal mine. Mm. And so in the last little, um, or the last four years or so, uh, it's, the fight has really transformed uh, into more of a uh, on-country camp and resistance after, you know, an orchestrated conspiracy by a state government and yep. <laughs> native title regime. Yep. Um, to sort of, uh, yeah, to undermine all of the decisions of our people. Uh, 
but the fight remains and um, I'm really proud that I, for eight years or the better part of a decade, um, I was involved in, in that resistance starting at the age of 19. Mm, I dare say old. Yeah, so my that. 20s have been defined by uh, resisting the Carmichael. I feel like reflecting now, that was definitely my training mm-hmm. and I'm such a lucky person, especially for a young person to get to work for my own people for almost 10 years. Mm. Um, now I'm able to take those learnings and put them out into the bigger world in um, new but similar ways. And you've definitely done that. And we'll talk, we'll get into that a little bit, in a little bit. But in recent years, you've gotten involved in some youth advocacy around climate change as well. So you've stepped away from your mob a little tiny bit and entered the general conversation of climate justice, but mainly through a grassroots way with Youth Verdict. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, thank you. So Youth Verdict, still a really small organisation, had its foundations um, from some young people who had a connection also with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and SEED, Mm. Indigenous Youth Climate Network, um, but has since, you know, transformed into a vehicle of of its own that centres the cultural rights and land justice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the solution forward in terms of addressing climate change and also securing a safe climate future Mm. for everybody because uh, when blackfellas achieve justice, everybody does. Mm. And so that's essentially our theory of change and working uh, with, you know, lawyers and through, I guess, legal avenues and the Human Rights Act in Queensland now to really centre First Nations knowledges of country as environmental expertise that is, you know, tens of millennia old. And so... It's still, um, you know, building off a lot of the work that um, I did with my family council fighting against the Carmichael coal mine. Um, but Youth Verdict is a really um, awesome sort of terms of bringing together. I think it's, you know, what excites me about it is it's an opportunity to bring together um, our people again in terms of those that, who are directly impacted by destruction of country for mining and, and extractive industries but also those on the other side of that that are feeling the first and worst impacts of climate change through the indirect impacts mm. of that carbon and pollution being in the atmosphere. And so, um, you know, it's about treating the tribes again. It's about bringing all the mob back together mm. and realising that we have to be united in this front against the destruction of Aboriginal land on the, on the mainland, but yeah. also um, standing up for our brothers and sisters along the coastline and in the Torres Strait who are already, mm. um, you know, facing loss of culture and country from the negative impacts of climate change. Yeah, we'll do all of that. That's a lot. <laughs> Where do you have the time in, in the day to do all of that? It feels like you're taking on the world, sis. Oh, I just sit outside um, trying to find some shade, trying to get some reception <laughs> and just sit on my phone all afternoon and working remotely. But I love opportunities like this where I get to come down to Brizzy, Maganchim, mm. Mianjin, catch up with the mob and um, really sort of put all that work into application mm. and and you're you're being celebrated for this work like in a really really quietly might I add so you've had massive wins I think the most the biggest win that I that I can think of is against Clive Palmer and Waratah Cole which massive in this case is so important for many reasons but some it has mainly to do like you just said with the Queensland Human Rights Act mm. tell us, go and tell us everything about that oh Thank you. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. So, um, you know, originally, 
you know, it's for the most part, it's sort of the legal realm, realm mm. and lawyers who you sort of, um, you know, have their ear to the sort of what's happening in terms of legal development mm. and infrastructure. And so shout out to the legal team that, um, reached out to me initially. Uh, you know, it's all, all of this and my invitation to sort of, um, be a part of a project like Youth Verdict and, uh, the Waratah, um, court case was really built off of, um, the profile I was able to sort of, yeah, and the political ca mm. capital I was able to build in a decade that I worked for my mob. Yep. So, um, you know, that just goes to show that when you're, people are behind you and support you and actually want to build you up, then, you know, a world of opportunities really opens up for yeah. you. Uh, but back to, you know, fighting Clive and beating <laughs> him. <laughs> um, he put up a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> and we, you know, we were working with public defenders, um, public interest um, mm. defenders, youth, uh, pardon me, environmental first. And so um, everything we did was on a shoestring budget. But it wasn't necessarily about the resources, but about the way in which we collaborated for strategy yeah. and actual case design that I think changed it in terms of, you know, for when the case started, I think it was becoming more and more commonplace mm. that, you know, to run climate cases, you know, yeah. we know about the Dutch um, case in government and sort of young people, especially there's the Sharma case here in Australia as well. Young people, you know, setting up... Um, against either mm. big polluters or their governments in regards to, uh, and through legal avenues, um, to, you know, um, take action on climate change. Mm. But, um, when I was first approached to, uh, be a part of, um, you know, this test case, because the Queensland Human Rights Act had just come out, there's section 27 is the culture rights of all Queenslanders. Mm. And then section 28 is the distinct and unique culture rights of Aboriginal people in Queensland. And so... You know, there were there are these rights, but um, how do we define them? Yeah. And I, you know, really wanted to join this case because I didn't want to miss the opportunity to actually be a part of shaping, um, you know, a beneficial decision for the advancement mm. of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural rights in a legal sense. Yeah. And so I was initially approached to be a witness myself. Um but I really thought, you know, this is an opportunity to make climate as well. Mm. And so um, decided to focus on the indirect impacts. And so um, my job initially was identifying, recruiting and I guess um, being a part of coordinating uh, First Nations witnesses that were identified through, you know, where are the first and worst impacts of climate change mm. happening and who are the cultural leaders um, in those from those communities that are able to speak to um, the impacts that uh, climate change is already having on their culture. Mm. And so what was really important for us was to tell the story intergenerationally because while it's a trend to have young people at the forefront of these sort of climate cases, um, the reality is that it's our old people and our older generations that have seen the changes with their eyes and observed them. Mm. And so... For us, it's it's about, yes, youth is in our name, but it's really about young people understanding that climate future for us is from, you know, ancient Indigenous knowledges. And so the people who carry those knowledges are elders and we need to respect them and learn from them as well. And so 
for me, what excited me about this case was really the opportunity to, because for far too long, and I've I've gone back, you know, over the years um, and looked at even like transcripts of mm. speeches from the tent embassy early days. Yeah. Um, and yes, it was always about land rights, but what's missing is, um, and there's always mention of human rights, but now when we reflect, you know, 50 years on, you know, the human rights, like mm. I think it's, you know, it's sort of default for black followers that our land rights and our human rights are synonymous. 100%. But that's not necessarily the way that um, it's understood yeah. outside of our community. And so um, all too often, I think the, the you know, centering of land rights has been mm. really a part of it. But unfortunately, the mentions of human rights has fallen to the wayside or it's been like intentionally sabotaged by the powers that be to remove that from the conversation. Yeah. And also, you know, Terranelius <laughs> survived until mm. 1992. So we're living in the shadow, um, unfortunately, of history as well. Mm. And so really for me, this case was so exciting because with the cultural rights being included in the Human Rights Act and we were able to attach the Queensland Human Rights Act to an objection mm. to the mining lease and environmental authority applications by Waratah for the Galilee Coal Project. Um, <clears throat> what, you know, what was so exciting about it for me and why I was like, I have to be a part of this is one, because it's precedent setting mm. and like the first test case. And I <laughs> was like, now that I know it's happening, I can't sort of not participate because if it's not done properly and to the high caliber and level that it's required to be done in order to be beneficial for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Queensland, then, you know, I'm going to have to carry that burden mm. as well. I don't, I didn't want it to go the other way mm. and actually take us back further. And so I saw it as an opportunity to remarry Aboriginal cultural rights, land rights, human rights and environmental rights as well which have all been intentionally separated by the colony and the powers that be, the state apparatus. And so that's, that was it. That's, what, that's it. That's what it was about. So we decided we're going to tell this story mm. intergenerationally mm. because we'll be able to actually um, evidence climate change impacts mm. over decades based on that intergenerational storytelling Two, we're going to do it through storytelling because that's our superpower. Mm. You know, this, our creation stories, Wundagata, Rangagata, mm. whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, that's the oldest living story in the world, the oldest story ever told on the face of this planet. And Wundagata was a story that got Kuma, our native title, across the road. Oh, across wow. The, we were one of the first native title um, cases that put Wundagata as our story and as our songline back. Like, it's power. It's and power. I just want to say Wundagata's rising because... Mm. We like every talking. single day, we're talking more about the water spirit, about justice, about the balance mm. between light and dark, good and evil. Um, and, you know, for too long, um, the balance has been working against us. And mm. now it's about, you know, our creator beings that hold that power, bringing the law back and bringing that balance back. And so Mundagat is coming back. And mm. um, I think as a, it, it's our job here in you know, on this physical plane really to create the conditions mm. um, that's going to best serve, um, you know, a better future for all of us. Um, but, yeah, so I saw it as an opportunity to remarry those things yeah. um, that have been separated by the 
the state apparatus. Mm. And um, what's really groundbreaking about the Human Rights Act is um, it's the second human rights charter in um, in the country. Mm. Unfortunately, it's limited limited in the sense that it's not a standalone legislation. Mm. It's a piggyback act. Yeah. But um, I'll just say that I I feel like I can, you know, I feel like I can say that there is an absolutely no way that the government and the powers that be ever imagined that we would use it in this mm. way. Like it was limited for a reason. Well, they try to re- they try to say that native title didn't exist for Southwest Queensland when it was first um, initiated. So, like the this colony hasn't, and this is the reason why yeah we have the Indigenous Lands and Sea Corporation and and bodies like that because these this government said that native title doesn't exist for all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples because why they've displaced and murdered and disappeared us so much mm-hmm. and silenced us. But so they create these other mechanisms mm-hmm. and it's like. It's wild to see that you've been able to touch and challenge all of that with Youth Verdict. It's mm. incredible. Yeah. And I have to shout out to, um, you know, our main founder mm. and who's also my co-director, Monique Jeffs, um, non-Indigenous young person, grew up in Gatton, mm. um, came to Brisbane for uni, um, but, you know, was like, we want to include cultural rights in this case, but we're not Indigenous mm. and we don't want to do it badly. And we want black fellas running it, how we do that. And so actually just gave me the space and the platform to say, if you want to win, this is what I, you know, from my experience and mm-hmm. um, what I've learned through running six cases against the, <laughs> the mm-hmm. Carmichael mine through both, you know, the state and federal court, um, that, um, you know, it has to have strong evidence. That's mm-hmm. the thing. And so that's that was the emphasis about we need cultural leaders who's, whose authority cannot be questioned mm. um, because at the same time, you know, and bring a native title into it mm. is these are the people who have um, been at the forefront of winning their native title claims as well, where their evidence and cultural knowledge has been used as sort of a part of that, you know, recognition of native title rights and interests. But also interesting to bring up native title because mm. this whole time, you know, we were running the case and I was like, you know, we've got to, yeah, this is how we sort of exercise our rights throughout the mm, process as yeah. well is we like, we push for on country evidence because it's not culturally appropriate to ask our people to limit their expertise and knowledge to be written on black and white paper yeah. and expect um, somebody else to resonate, with, you know, the decision maker to resonate with that. Um, yes, mm-hmm. it's in their sort of mode of communication, but there's no spirit in it. Mm. And so that's what the push for on country evidence was about. So we were able to do that. And for the first time ever, Land Court of Queensland, considering a mining lease and environmental authority, went to country where our witnesses were from and saw firsthand the impacts of climate change, but also the impacts to culture that are being faced by those kids. And, you know, I don't care what anybody else says, mm. that was the thing that changed it yeah. from being, you know, possibly being in a long line of unsuccessful climate cases <laughs> mm. to being like a huge win against, you know, over a billionaire like Clive Palmer. Mm. And so, but just going back for a second, mm. I was like, when's native title going to pop up? And me, a little mm. bit paranoid, you know, I was like, it's the, col-, you know, like, and even the lawyers, good ways, love them. Um, but they were like, oh, but, you know, this is human rights. So um, it has to be read, you know, from an international sort of mm. interpretation, which was great. Yeah. That was working on our side. But, 
you know, I was like waiting for the day, waiting for the day. We submitted um, a draft uh, first law protocol, which included like our um, push for on country evidence, but also the push for concurrent evidence, which is mm. where, you know, we said it's culturally inappropriate to ask just one person to represent yeah. the, the cultural knowledge of their whole people and their country because our intellectual property and our cultural knowledge is held in trust by the, by the police by the people, by the collective. Mm. And yes, there are certain people with authority to speak to certain knowledges or there are certain people that are the spokespeople. But at the end of the day, we all bounce off each other in sort of um, holding that cultural knowledge, you mm. know. And so it's just culturally inappropriate to ask us to sort of sanitise and dial down what we know to be true of country because there's a certain way that it's supposed to be submitted to like the land court. Mm. Um, and so, but yeah, so we, we put in um, our draft first law protocol and said, these are all the things that we need to have are part of this process and the hearing and the way that the evidence is considered in order for the decision at the end of the day to be in line with the Queensland Human Rights Act. Because mm. it's one thing to like make, just make a decision that you say is in line with it, but it's another thing to ensure that a decision is in line with it mm. because you've taken the steps to run the process that way. So process and outcome have to be aligned. Mm. And so, but straight away, as soon as we submitted our first law protocol, yeah. here come Waratah lawyers saying, but what about the Native Title Act? Lem okay. <laughs> I know your face is like, what? What? With the head tilt. Yeah. Oh. Head tilt, squint, <laughs> real hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, they were like, what about, um, we consider... We're, more, we're more familiar with native title and we consider native title best practice as best practice. Um, and, you know, don't get me wrong, DES, Department of Environment and Science, at the, end of the, at the end of the day made the right decision in not issuing the environmental authority based on the recommendation from the land court. Mm. But at the same time, they were also a part of the pushback against the first law protocol saying, we are also for more familiar with native title best practice. We consider that best practice. We've known that for 30 years. So this is how entrenched the native title regime is, that even when you take it outside of it um, and you're, you know, working through a human rights lens and, you know, and pushing mm -hmm. for an international interpretation of human rights to stand, um, here comes native title again, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> raining on our parade. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we were able to get the on-country evidence and get concurrent evidence and... For me, taking, you know, the president of the land court to far north Queensland to show the impacts of climate change that are already happening and sort of how it's impacting communities, threatening their livelihoods and also their cultural survival and, mm. you know, the survival of their identity into the future through loss of country and sort of inability to access cultural places and, and pass that knowledge on to future generations. Um, for me, that was the that was the thing that switched it from a regular climate climate from a regular climate case to, you know, a precedent really that can, mm -hmm. um, that has broken down some barriers in terms of blackfellas engaging with the land court, such as being able to do on-country evidence, but it's also, um, you know, that's there now for other yeah. blackfellas to use as well. Legit. This is incredible. I hope everybody, I hope everybody takes away like that incredible work that you've been doing with Youth Verdict. And what are the red flags of these legal systems in the colony mm. that you've in come across through all of your work? Yeah. Well, I think the main one is like, and we've all had experience with this, every single, mm. you know, black follower who's had anything to do with or heard about, 
you know, the way the native title regime works or, um, you know, just land claims in general. Mm. And that, you know, it's always a red flag for me when we're not selecting our own leaders and spokespeople. And so, um, you know, this is something that my mob have come up against is that, um, you know, within like who is the native title party Mm. and whatnot and who can, you know, that they, these sort of structures Mm. are, you know, sold to us internally by lawyers Mm. that, you know, this is a good structure, works for you, but really it undermines the collective, the group, and also our um, our own mandate mm. as custodians and inheritance of our law. Yeah, well. um, you know, how do we maintain a sort of cultural path mm. when all of the sort of structures that be are constantly, like the name of the game is to subvert us yeah. and move us away from those things? Um, and what I will say that I uh, that I didn't say before as well is like I that's how my brain works. Like I love sort of um, lol. Also, all all girls Catholic boarding school for all of <laughs> high school. So and my dad like sending us to a Catholic boarding school was yeah. like you have to understand how the miggly mind works. That's what you got to like, go and learn their doctrine <laughs> so that you can figure out how to break it apart. Our dad's the same person. Yeah. <laughs> and so you know, um, like I don't believe that. The legal system, no matter what level, whether it's, you know, um, yeah, I guess that the Western legal system, um, even all the way up to the high court, like, yes, we've had huge wins there, mm. but I don't necessarily think that it is the remedy mm. for all of the, you know, land rights issues and sovereignty and land issues, because the burden of the conversation. But, um, yeah, I think we um, keep a little niche there. There is an intersection where young people can and should be taking up legal avenues mm. where they can. Um, and, you know, pushing forward arguments like we've done with the Waratah case as well and sort of breaking down the barriers such as, you know, if we hadn't got the on if we didn't get concurrent evidence, then like our witnesses, like I don't know what that would have, I, I mm. feel like that would have made an unsuccessful decision at the end of the day mm. because um, the reality faced by our First Nations witnesses um, of experiencing the climate impacts and cultural loss that they're facing and have already been facing. Um, cause, you know, I was very lucky to get to go up um, country of our witnesses and and um, actually, you know, be taken around and shown, mm. like, for example, on Dunley Island, where, where our witnesses, the Gutchin family, um, are from, but also represented Potum Island too, Coconut Island. So Dunley Arab, like, mm. we were shown, you know, one, when I went up in 2020 to um, you know, sort of recruitment for witnesses, but also um, gathering some of that initial evidence as well with the legal team. Um, you know, we were shown one particular beach where um, the shoreline the shoreline was 10 metres back only like three years ago. Oh, wow. And they said, you know, all the, see those like coconut trees that you see fallen over? Like metres in front of that was mm. the shoreline. And now all those coconut trees have fallen down. And then the, there was another line of coconut trees and they said, this is, this is the new shoreline really and this is the last line of coconut trees on this beach. Um, and unfortunately, like literally just before our court decision, November 2022, um, you know, we heard news from our, oh, it's going to make me mm. upset. We heard news that, um, yeah, like the last line of coconut trees had fallen down mm. and there's like a sacred site just like a couple of metres up from there and... Like the beach is just 
disappearing. Islands are disappearing. So it's really sad because, you know, you've got burials. Also, just the unpredictability of what country is changing into, transforming into from climate change, it makes it unsafe as well for to be able to pass culture on because, well, for example, like um, the weather patterns are changing, the wind, um, the you know, there's changes to the ocean itself. It's, it's just unpredictable where it's dangerous. Mm. And so um, it's like keep your kids safe and at home or, you know, just sort of, you know, you take them out, but you also are taking that risk too, like seafaring and whatnot. Mm. Um, and then on the mainland, you know, like as well, you have like coastlines of mangroves that, you know, they they were really resilient. They came back and came back, but there's only so much sort of coastal erosion and degradation that they can take before they don't come back anymore. Mm. And so country physically is changing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sorry. So I think it... It, it gave spirit yeah. to like a Western um, judicial and legal infrastructure that is void of spirit mm. and doesn't allow for that to be a part of, you know, what's considered. And I think, you know, um, concepts of human rights internationally and domestically as well and whatnot. But at the same time, like it's all of that sort of becomes like that's not the point, you know. The point is being able to express um, yeah, express the reality through spirit. And for me, like that was, you know, that's, that's why this mm. decision was successful. And we've been able to sort of break down barriers in terms of, um, you know, usually like this is the rigidity of the court system is that usually you've just got your lay witnesses and you've got your expert witnesses. And most of the time those expert witness, witnesses are like your scientists, your archaeologists, mm. your genealogists, all those sort of people. Um, and we actually um, pushed for our witnesses to be um, sort of weighty to the expert evidence. Well, um, you know, they're not experts in terms of Western institutions, learning institutions, but they have more expertise than anybody else involved in the whole thing because they have knowledge that's been passed on for literally tens and tens of thousands of years. Like, um, and that is expertise of country. Like, we can tell you something and they'll say, oh, no. Lol, like the megafauna. Mm. <laughs> we were like, we had 24 kangaroos. And they were like, it's all myth and legend. And then they find their fossilized remains, you know, and they're like, oh, mm. they were giant wombats and giant claws and giant kangaroos and all of these things. And so there, you know, Western science is slowly catching up mm. to um, what we know to be true in our, like, memory. <laughs> that millennia, millennia, since time immemorial, Probably. our memory of being here in this place on country. Mm. Um, but yeah, all that's to say that, you know, the legal system doesn't work for everybody. And we all know that, especially with um, engagement with the native title regime. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, everybody is doing and trying to do their part. Um, and sort of this is like my and youth verdicts way mm. um, of doing our part in the sense of, we got the system to remedy everything for us, but at the same time, like you have, you can have your wins. Like yeah. we've had, you know, it was not do it because we don't believe in the Western legal system mm. or do it and smash somebody like Clive Palmer and like literally stop a coal mine in Queensland from being built, which is the first time that's ever happened. Um, and so, you know, you have um, obviously... Marbo High Court decision. You have Wick, 
versus Queensland High Court decision. Mm -hmm. You have Yana versus the Commonwealth High Court decision. Mm -hmm. And so all along the way, our people have always gone to the peak of, you know, the colonial sort of decision-making system Mm -hmm. and taken our fight up to them and um, had cases so strong that, you know, it's been undeniable and they've had no choice but to um, award us, you know, uh, those wins. Mm. Obviously, what happens afterwards always for like the amendments to the Native Title mm. Act under Howard. Um, but at the same time, it was stop this coal mine or not. Well, you're really paving away, and I know that, just especially for myself, um, with my mob's battle with Santos at the moment, mm. and the decision that went down in the Tiwi Islands in terms to legal damage or actual physical damage to that seabed and that in their waters. It's overwhelming and it's daunting. Mm. I'm like, honestly, sis, listening to you today, as set a fire. You set a fire under my belly and well, in my belly. And love how you've reminded everybody that when we're entering these these colonial Western courtrooms and lecture halls and spaces and native title meetings, that if we're not walking in with our law first, with mm. our woomeras in our hands and singing our songs and wearing our paint, we have nothing. But if we walk in there as a collective and we imagine and we can manipulate, blackfellas are cheeky. We're good at being cheeky. Mm. We need to be more empowered with, with our woman or with our law and, and challenge these colonial values because you've proven, you've proven it to be effective. Good ways. It was through the better part of a decade of heartbreak. <laughs> but it was like, all right. <laughs> Beaten down, or do I get up and take all the horrible lessons that I've learned and turn it into something, you know, that centers out. And that's also what I love about taking it out of the native title system as mm. well is they're always going to try and bring it in, mm. but, you know, you can cut there because that doesn't belong in here. Even what you were saying with um, the collective witnesses, like in visiting their countries, right? Like that's, um, Teela Watson said to me many years ago that we adored about our people was that we all respect each other's creation and like we're like one of the only peoples in the world who will ask each other how were you created and mm. we'll have a unanimous connection. Like we'll find a connection to your creation and our creations will be completely different or could be, but we'll find that connection, that commonality. I don't think pe- pe- the weight and the gravity of that because we, we've been displaced and broken by this colony so freaking much that the one thing that we have is that collective law mm. and our song lines. And if... You're talking about Murray Bama law connecting across to to the Straits, to Zenith Kaz. Like mm. that is just incredible. Yeah, and like good ways after. Sh- oh, oh, I can't praise them enough. And if I talk too much, like, I'll these get are doing a clear connection. <laughs> like this colony and these courts have said that this how, doesn't exist. Yeah, this is how we decolonize in through a self determined way. Is you know the sort of the court case is just the that's just the platform. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But the bigger conversations that we have is about, yeah, unite. Like we were always one mob. Mm. And then what happened mm. 235 years of colonialism, mm. you know, that tried to tell us otherwise. Oh, you're that one group over there. Or your your boundaries are rigid. You can't share country or you mm. can't speak the same language. Or you can't speak multiple of your neighbor's languages, mm. you know telling us, uh, trying to redefine who we are and really limit us and bring us down to, you know, a sort of um, subhuman level of relation to each other. Um, 
but yeah, like I have to shout out to the witnesses because um, while we, again, on a shoestring budget, like um, we were lucky enough, Youth Verdict, because obviously we're working with public interest um, lawyers and they've, um, you know, they've got their own sort of mm. um, resource challenges and whatnot as well. Um, whereas, you know, the mining and extractive industries, are, <laughs> they have them mm. and they've got really deep and unlimited pockets. And so when it comes to taking up the fight against them in the courts, you know, they've sort of, they've got all the resources, but at the same time, like we were lucky enough that we, YB had gotten a really small grant and we had like $5,000 left. And I was like, we can't run a climate case unless we go to the Torres Strait. That mm. wasn't in the original budget, wow. but, um, you know, we put our own money up, YB put our own money up to make the Torres Strait chip happen. Um, and because it was important that we have, it's not even separate, but it was important that we have duality. So we yeah. have male and female representation. We have two women, we have three men out of the five witnesses. We have mainland and um, sea country representation. Mm. So we have um, two witnesses from the Cape, three from the Torres Strait. It was important that we had two areas of the mainland, like coastal country, represented, and then we had two main areas of sea country in the Torres Strait represented mm. with Darnley and Poruma. And so, um, Arab, pardon me, and mm. Poruma. And so, um, you know, it was about really like we have to stand on the principles and make the structural decisions um, according to our law principles. Yeah. Um, you know, and we had younger people and elders in there as well. Because, um, you know, we're not going to accept anymore that all the knowledge is held by this person or the right to speak is held by these people or, you know, um, pardon me, um, the burden of, um, mm. you know, feeling these impacts or carrying the load is held by, you know, just young people because that's not the truth. Like all of this follows a long line of, you know, legacy of resistance. And so that's what it's about. Mm. I have no words, mic drop. Up on that. Also, you know, one thing that sort of, um, you know, when I was coming to terms with sort of the way that some of our own people were able to be coerced by the state apparatus and sort of stand with the state against their own people and mm. our interests instead of with our people and for our law and our country. Um, you know, it's like, how, how do you reconcile with that? Mm. How do you rationalise that and come to a place where you're not just heartbroken for eight straight years like me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, what do you do with that? You know what I mean? Yeah. So how it's sort of um, how I was able to differentiate. And, you know, it's it's really simple and maybe it's not the, the best way to do it. But it was like there's, like, we're all still one mob, mm. but there's the lawful and the lawless. Mm. And not in the sense of, like, criminal activity, <laughs> but in the sense, well, although according to our law. <laughs> and so in the sense of... There's those who live by the law and there's those who live against our law. Yeah. And, you know, we're all compromised in a sense by the pervasiveness of this whole colonial project. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's about what spirit are you working with and who are you working for? And so, yeah, I don't agree with the Western legal system, but like I'm trying to do things that are going to help other mob who want to maybe mm -hmm. challenge mining lease or environmental authority and want to use... Um, their cultural stories and their law as a way of, you know, evidencing why certain projects and destruction of countries shouldn't go ahead mm. because of the loss that um, everybody's going to face <laughs> through climate change, but also, you know, especially, you know, our ground zero people who are facing the direct impacts as well and, you know, the ground zero of the indirect impacts through climate change.
And there's so like there's so many other deadly, ironically, unironically, I should say, black sister girls, lawyers or lawmakers or change makers or just law women, I should say, that are making these kinds of changes and impacts across the board on the East Coast that, that I know of, like Taylor Gray. Um, but she's amazing. She's challenging the native title legislation down there in New South Wales mm. and um, talking up a lot. of. And we heard a lot from Taylor during the referendum. Um, she was on Q&A quite a bit and spoke about um, three freehold land titles. Mm. And and it's really lovely to see that, especially in a in the colony of New South Wales, because mm. they have a Land Rights Act where mm. we don't necessarily have a Land Rights Act up here. We just, mm. which is really amazing. And I know that Linda June Co will be visiting her father's case, it will, is in hopes of doing that as well. And there's mm. just... We've been able to expand and extend the work of these old veterans and go into these colonial institutions like a law school and pick up enough to either run with it or say, F you, goodbye, gone the mm-hmm. other way. And come out swinging and actually mm. like, I already know what you're going to say mm. <laughs> and don't worry, I've got my defence lined up. You mm. know what I mean? That part. Um, and you, it's funny you should mention like we don't have that in Queensland because, yeah. you know, while it's it's one thing... Like now we've got a human rights charter, but, you know, pre, pre 2020, Mm. like Queensland is this really interesting, diabolical (laughs) intersection of like, we're right next to the NT, we're on the East coast, we're right above um, New South Wales. And so, and, you know, we've got, like, we don't have Land Rights Act. There is, you know, the Federal Native Title Act. um, And... I just have to shout out to Queensland mob because, um, like Mabo, Wick, mm. Yana, mm. Kawada, mm. uh, you know, well, they're, they're all coming out of Queensland yeah. and that just goes to show you that like, we like the strength of the fight that we have in us, even though we're limited, we don't have the things that other mobs mm. in other States might have, mm. but we're able to show our cultural strength to, you know, take it to the highest levels of mm. their legal system and win. That part. That part. That's, that's everything. I, and I hope a lot of young people get to listen back to this and discover their power. Or like just, because we always, you know, we always talk about, or I always used to talk about with other peers, like, have you gone home yet? You know, like, have you just spoken with your old people yet? And because these conversations always come about in the context of how do we make change? It's like we... Uncle Robbie Thorpe was on um, last week and he said, I'm a, I'm a kangaroo. I don't go backwards, you know? Mm. And it's, I guess like a lot of us fellas, young fellas that are well, new young fellas to organizing are, are defaulting to going backwards to be like, maybe we've come too far, but. I think, oh, this is a whole yeah. other episode, but like, yeah, good ways. I feel like the more I um, learn and um, sort of get clear about the way in which I want to have an impact, mm. the more the rigidity of, like, my dad and my <laughs> grandparents and my old people. Where we, You know, for the colony, mm. we're stubborn, we're hard-headed, and we don't listen and <laughs> fall into line. But our way, we're the resistance fighters, you know what I mean? And so there's this really interesting um balancing act that we have to do Mm. where it's like i'm fluent in the white man's world yeah but um 
that's not my core belief system. Mm. It's not my, it's just not who I am. Um, and so I feel, you know, sometimes I feel a little bit alien, like mm. good ways is why I dropped off for a couple of years and I just <laughs> head down by my working on the court case because I was like, this is the way that I feel like I can do the best to express what I believe and what I've learned, um, and put it into practice in a, yeah, in a, in a practical way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sometimes I feel like a lot of things have become, and I think that's why court cases work for me yeah. because it's like you put it there, you got it, you fight it and you know, um, the outcome always doesn't work and it doesn't, it's not always your way, mm. but there is sort of an outcome and then there's work that builds off that platform yeah. as well. And so, um, you know, maybe I'm a little bit impulsive and impatient no. in terms of <laughs> fighting quality, but at the same time, like, um, I feel like things have gone a little bit too much in, it's all in theory now and it's mm. all in conversation rather than in, in doing it. And that's not to, you know, um, down anybody or push anything not negative out there. It's just my observation of yeah. sort of where is the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, where is the First Nations agenda going? And is it one, you know, when we reevaluate and we look at it and all the different parts of it, is it one that's working towards our key law principles in terms of us being the decision makers about our country, one of, you know, absorption into the white Australian mainstream mm. and sort of making that a bit more, like, let's blackify the mainstream so that black fathers feel more comfortable being a part of it rather than let's blackify the mainstream and alienate everyone from a destructive violent system that's killing the earth yeah. um, and bring everyone along towards, you know, a sort of, sort of certain values and principle system is in line with everybody's, you know, health, mm. well-being, stronger futures, lol. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll do all of that. I think Chelsea and David, um, advanced black knights, mm. everything that you've just described and the the way that David and Chelsea go into advancing black knowledge is just um, the embodiment of mm. black knowing, which is the phrase that Chelsea uses. And mm. it's important that we, and I love how you were talking about spirit before, because it's important that we remember that embodied black knowing and the spirit that fills us. And it's so integral for black power. Mm. I saw <laughs> something, sorry, last thing, I saw something recently that said, um, you can't believe something and know it at the same time. Mm, yeah, facts. You yeah. either know it or you don't. Yeah. And just on black knowing, it's like, you know, pushing back against everything they've told us mm. about who we are and limited us mm. um, to like, you know, that's sort of where my fight comes from. It's like, you know, I grew up in Kalkaki, Central Queensland, mm. like death threats on the daily, like the police involved with trying to ch chase us out of town. It's going to be in my book. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, like, yeah. you know, um, my dad talking about you can't be friends with that person because like their last name was directly involved in hunting posses that were mm. going on in central Queensland into the sixties. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. And so, but one thing that I always, you know, and this is shout out to my grandparents, my old people, mm -hmm. and just exactly where we are is like right close to the Bowman Johnson hostel, my grandfather, and also, um, the born free house yeah. named after my grandmother, Edith Johnson, um, that, um, you know, where my fight really came from is like, they told us all these things. And like, I even, when I won age champion for the swimming carnival in year seven, and mm -hmm. we were like the only Aboriginal kids at our school, 
um, because we moved back to country. (laughs) And, um, yeah, one of the girls come up to me who was supposed to be, like, one of my friends. But she goes, oh, I didn't know Aboriginals could swim or, like, swim that fast. And I was like, how do you think we didn't drown when we fished and when we bathed (laughs) and when we, you know, what, like, we couldn't swim but we caught jigong and turtle and, Mm. like, yeah, what... Make it make sense. Mm. Um, Anyway, but all that's to say that sort of, you know, um, I just want to give props to my old people because they sort of laid, you know, they made their lives about making sure that whatever they say about us, whatever the colony says about us, they're an example of that's not true. So I grew up, you know, um, learning that what they tell us to believe and what I know from what I see in my family that doesn't line up. And so somewhere here, someone's lying and I know my mob and I know my family and I can look to that, you know, history and legacy and it, all of the, all of the lies that we're told to believe. So knowing and believing black knowing Mm. above believing. One thing that, yeah, we'll do all of that. And one thing my dad, of that. I remember when, um, cause I moved to Sydney from Kanamala. We, when we first left Kanamala, because I grew up there until I was about seven, and then we moved to Sydney in Marrickville, and I learned, I got to meet all these other different look types of looking people, because back home in Kanamala, even my I knew that even my my blonde haired blue eyed cousins were black, mm. and I just I thought that everybody was black, and one of my best mates was Tongan, and I had a rude awakening when one day on the schoolyard I'm asking her to do a corroboree with me and she didn't know what a corroboree was mm-hmm. and <laughs> I was real shame. I was like, no way. And I went back to dad. I was like, dad, sis reckons she's Tongan. Like where's Tonga? Like what? In, in the Northern Territory or something. That was my, that was my brain. Mm. Like blessed little seven year old me. Mm. But then I got like, that was like the kind of moment when I realized that not everybody's Aboriginal, mm. but the blonde haired, blue eyed neighbor's not Aboriginal. Just because she looks like your cousin doesn't mean she is. Mm. But yeah. But anyways, dad started speaking in a way about sovereignty. He really started talking about sovereignty to me when I was around seven. And one of the concepts that he gave to me was, Bob, we're not, we're not African-American. We're not here fighting for our civil rights. We're here fighting for our birthright Mm -hmm. and our sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And the sovereignty is our birthright in a colonial language. Mm -hmm. And that really changed my whole framework mm-hmm. of how I, how I actively resist and what I'm resisting for and what the purpose of this resistance is. It's not so that I'm treated like kin with my white peers. It's so that my, I can enact my sovereign birthright and my responsibility mm-hmm. because my birthright is a responsibility. Uh, we are caretakers. We are law protectors and keepers. We, Everything about us is about protecting something sacred Mm -hmm. and it can never be reduced to something as simple as civil rights. Mm -hmm. And I I appreciate my father for that teaching and that framework so much. And uh, I don't know, I draw a lot of similarities between what you've, what you've touched on today. And this is just like, this is, this is our old people talking Mm. and, you know, in 20 years time, 30 years time when our little ones are young and it'll Mm. be... It's our old people talking again. Like (laughs) it's that same message from day one Mm. and it's just up to the, you know, each new generation to carry it on. Mm. Um, Yeah. I want to like say so much more, but I feel like we should do another yarn. We honestly should. Chelsea will probably make you stick around till her show on Monday anyways. Oh my God. (laughs) Don't put ideas in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah. Yeah. 
just that I what you were saying before about how we like what Taylor said. Mm. We uh, like we respect each, each other's, other's creation, creation, and we ask about uh, each other about each other's creation. Um, yeah, that's all you know. In line with that is that we're not all the same. Mm. Everybody should be living out their birthright. Mm. And the thing is that um, you know the state apparatus of Australia has tried to pervert and you know, hijack our birthright from us. Mm. And, um, yeah, that's, you know, a little bit of um, living your birthright mm. and yarning about your birthright in theory. Mm. That was a little bit why I had to move out of the city as well because I was like, it's all day. But mm. if I'm not living it, if I'm not doing my cultural obligations, then kind of what's the point of it all? Mm. Because it's about, you know, living culture. That and that is the living birthright and... Um, yeah, our sovereignty. That's it. The country's where the heart is. But my sis, thank you for coming on today. I've, this has just been the deadliest yarn and I think we could sit here for hours, but we don't have enough coffee. We need more cuppers and little nieces or nephews to bring us, yes. bring us all them coffees <laughs> so that we could sit here for another like, two hours. I just, oh, sorry. But I think we might round it up. Thank you for coming on. And for everyone that wants to follow Youth Verdict, where can just do a little bit of a shameless plug for Youth oh, Verdict. How yes. do we follow? Shameless, and how do we of keep... course. <laughs> yeah. So we've got Instagram, we've got our website. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, again, a really small team of like three, four. Um, and, you know, we're working on our recruitment as well. But mm -hmm. um, if you want to like just support us online, um, maybe send, you know, send us an email saying, mm -hmm you're interested, you want to be involved because we've got some deadly stuff cooking up mm. um, and, you know, we'll be bringing that. I'll be, I'll be back on the show to yarn about that soon. But, um, yeah, so Youth Verdict, Y-O-U-T-H-V-E-R-D-I-C-T mm. um, and our website is youthverdict.org.au. Um, you can email us at team, T-E-A-M, at youthverdict.org.au. You can email me um, through <laughs> Youth Verdict at marawa, M-U-R-R-A-W-A-H, Mm. at youthverdict.org. Mm. Well, thank you, my sister. Thank you. And for all you mob listening, I hope that you guys get to come back and just enjoy everything about black power or let's talk in general. And listen back to it and maybe take some notes and think about how I challenge everybody who's listening today to think about how we can actively resist in our own communities. What we've heard from Youth Verdict and Wawa today, Marawa, is that anything can happen. Um, she's been raising a baby in the middle of the rainforest whilst changing the world and setting a precedent. So I believe that we all need to rise to the occasion and enact our sovereignty in our communities and weaponize and manipulate systems with the power of the Woomera, with the power of our, our song lines mm. and with the power of our collective imagining and just collective song lines. Mm. And I think, but just to go off of that last message, sorry, shout out to everyone. Thank you for having me on the show, my mm. sister, is really that... Um, as long as our law comes first, you know, uh, you can go into any avenue, mm -hmm. even if it's the Western legal system. And as long as you maintain your cultural integrity, more opportunities are always opening up for you. No more whispering in our mind. Let's talk Monday to Friday at 9am no on AAA Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au, proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.